The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen speaking peoples, the Songhees, and the Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. Okay, so if you've been listening to my show for a while, you know I have some personal favorites, those like sort of unsung episodes that may not have the most downloads, but they're times that I got to meet someone of soaring intellect and great inspiration to me, or whose work has been particularly formative for me. One that comes to mind immediately is the time I got to interview Charlene Spretnak. She wrote Lost Goddesses of Early Greece, which is probably like a lesser work for her in her career. She might have even preferred it if I wanted to talk more about her immense body of work and her incredible influence on American feminism. But as it stands, her episode, episode 73, stands out to me. And so it also jumped out to me when... I saw that Charlene Spretnak's name appeared in the author's notes of my next guest's book. I just knew that this would be a great episode, but because I'd only read her books, I had no idea just how truly wonderful a speaker and teacher my next guest is. When I clicked stop recording at the end of this interview, I said out loud, that was a masterpiece. I've had this show for 10 years, so I've had a chance to develop both my interviewing and my listening skills. And something I've learned, this is just my opinion, but in my experience, you really can tell the true writers from the rest of us, like even those of us who, like me, are published authors. A gifted writer very often also speaks extemporaneously in a way that's like fulsome and coherent and eloquent. Like their thoughts are already quite well organized and they're probably, you know, in part just very gifted thinkers, but I think they've also just organized their thoughts by speaking either with others or with themselves in their minds. They have large inner worlds populated by the ideas of other interesting thinkers and beings, and they have deep relationships with beings in unseen realms. And sometimes those beings are... They're old teachers or lovers or ghosts. Sometimes those beings are the land, the trees, the clouds. But when you enter into conversation with them, you feel transported or like you've walked over a bridge into their unique world. And that's what it was like with my next guest. And in the end, I didn't need to do a single minute of editing. (laughs) So my guest today is Perdita Finn. She is the co-founder with her husband, Clark Strand, of the non-denominational international fellowship, The Way of the Rose, which inspired their book, The Way of the Rose, The Radical Path of the Divine Feminine Hidden in the Rosary. In addition to extensive study with Zen masters, priests, rabbis, shamans, healers, Perdita also apprenticed with the psychic Susan Saxman, with whom she wrote The Reluctant Psychic. Perdita now teaches popular workshops on getting to know the dead, in which participants are empowered to activate the magic in their own lives with the help of their ancestors. Her newest book is called Take Back the Magic, Conversations with the Unseen World. 
So Perdita, what identities do you lead with? I'm an animal. And I'm an animal who's forgotten how to be an animal. And I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to listen to the other animals and let them teach me and guide me home back to my place in the natural world. And I'm trying to listen to the plants. We root me into the soil. Um, I'm trying to let the animals teach me what it means again, how to live inside this body with my appetites, with its desires, with its imagination and intuition. But um, yeah, I'm an animal. It's the only identity I want in this life. Mm. Mm, thank you. So we're here today to talk about your book, Take Back the Magic. I would say if I, when I'm sharing this with people, because there aren't, I get sent books every week and, you know, a lot of them I don't read. They go in the free little library, that kind of thing. Um, but I was very excited to get your book. And as I'm describing it to people and talking about it with people, which is the second thing I very rarely do, I very rarely talk about the books because, you know, there's just so many. I'm trying to describe it to them. And it's like, okay, it's part spiritual memoir. It's also part how-to for ancestral veneration. But it's also this takedown of the patriarchy through the lens of the relationship with your father, who was a doctor. And so it's these three kind of main threads woven together, but of course it's many other things too. I, I keep saying it's a, it's a book about family. It really is. It's a book about families um, and the climate crisis and how we personally and in community try to cope with that. I just can't even begin to imagine how you pitched this book <laughs> to your agent and then like persuaded a publisher that you were like, yes, this is an idea whose time has come. I'm going to put all of this stuff in this cauldron that is this book. And I, I promise there's a market for it. Like, tell me what that pitch was like. Sure. Well, for me, the book boils down to a really simple but really hard and radical idea which I have come to not from the top down but from my feet up from the ground up from the dirt up and that is that the dead are real all the dead are real I'm not just talking about my biological ancestors I'm talking about all the dead on this planet who create the ground the very ground upon which we stand the dead are real and they're differentiated and they're unique and they're vibrant and they're vital. And they want to collaborate with us. They want to play with us. They see things we don't. They can see in the dark when we can't. And so that was the kind of fundamental idea that motivates my work and my writing. And it's, I always say it's as simple as flour and water make bread, but getting that first sourdough started going can be a little complicated right so that's what all the extra words are about um how did i pitch it uh god i'm trying to find my pitch um i think the thing is i trust the dead and i've come to trust the dead and i always whenever i do anything i put it, my team together on the other side and so of course for, first and foremost on the team was my father 
who was a doctor, a surgeon, a sailor who could navigate by the stars, a very competent guy. So he was, and also, you know, he was a narcissist and this is a book about him. So he was on the team. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Nothing about me without me. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, you know, one of the things I've learned when I work with the dad is that they see the path through the forest that I don't. My job is to put my feet where they tell me and to trust that they're leading the way. And that doesn't, that means that sometimes I go into pretty scary places and I don't know how we're going to make it through. And I don't know why we're here and why things are so hard. And we're in this swamp right now for the next four days. And the swamp I ended up in was my long-term agent who had loved and sold way of the rose. Um, decided to retire the month before I finished the book because her father, her, her husband had cancer. And my long-term editor, who I love, lost her job. So I was orphaned. This book, it, I, I thought it was going to be a very easy process. I thought, it, and Jerry was a love and she read the book for me and she loved it. And she said, oh, I had, you know, I've always knew you were spooky. I had no idea how spooky you were. <laughs> you know? So she was a sweetheart. And, and is that the new agent or your old? Oh, that's my old oh, one. Old so then agent. I had the process okay. of going and it was not a process I wanted. I didn't order it off the menu. I didn't enjoy it. I, you know, I've been in publishing a long time, so I know the routine and I began, you know, making contacts and writing to people and pitching the book. I went to a woman who had sold a book I'd written with a psychic and done Eben Alexander's Proof of Heaven, but she was about to sell her agency. And this kind of thing kept happening. And um, and yet each stalemate changed the book. So she said to me, you know, I'm not representing books like this and I'm full, you know, I'm, I'm moving out of this area, but the book isn't quite cohesive enough. Mm. And so that's when I started writing letters to my father. Mm. That no. Then I went to a friend's agent who said, I wish it had a more of a how-to quality. That's when I added in the practice <laughs> section. Do you, right. And so one of the things I've learned with working with the dead is, okay, this is not a fun journey and I'm having to do more work than I imagined I was going to do, but the book was getting better and better. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up with, of course, my fairy godmother of an agent, mm -hmm. a woman who'd been a long time editor, famous spiritual book editor, just come in and she's I love her so much it's hard to describe the feeling of reunion it's not just mm. my agent she's my she's my fairy godmother you know mm. she checks up on me to make sure I've written my thank you notes and she gets a book auction going for me <laughs> and she went to a bunch of editors and one editor she went to took the book it landed on her desk and she threw it in her purse the manuscript to bring it home or had it on her kindle i don't know which it was she but she went home and found out that her father had just died unexpectedly mm -hmm. his name was ron connors and it's as much his book mm -hmm. as my father's book because two weeks after this heartbreaking tragedy she took out my book to read mm -hmm. And the extraordinary thing is after she bought the book in a preempt, I wrote her a thank you note. And I was looking at the cards on my desk and, you know, what should I send her? And, you know, I have, you know, I had a 
spiritual cards, but I've really taken a photograph of these beautiful flowers at nighttime. For some reason, it just so beautiful. I put off send that to her, you know, thanks. I can't wait to work with you. You know, I'm delighted you bought the book. I send it off to her and she writes me back an email and says, thank you for the picture of sweet peas. My father's nickname for me was sweet. Pea. Oh, <laughs> so oh. I guess what I want to say is I work with the dead and they know more than I know. And what they're always doing is so much deeper and more loving and more unifying than anything I could have predict or planned for. Mm -hmm. So now I have a dream agent and a dream editor and I'm planning a lot of books with them and we're having that. And she ended up buying Sophie's book. You know, I mean, like you know, oh, the, family, the family, my agent is now Sophie's agent. We're all a family. <laughs> oh, well, and as I mentioned, family really is the core of the book. Uh, so let's talk a bit more about that your deceased father, your correspondence with him is the fertile ground for some of the most existential questions uh, in the book. And at one point you write to him, you were in so many ways, a very model of our species, which imagines itself special among all other life on earth. The price of our achievements has been nothing less than isolation and despair. So that sentence kind of sums up in some ways, like what you're grappling with through the whole book. And it sounds kind of like a downer, but actually I found the whole book really quite uplifting and very um, uh, comforting. I found it a comforting read. So how did the an ancestors help to stabilize you and either give you say focus or purpose or just that kind of like, okay, this is the path in the face of these overwhelming dilemmas. And, and I say the dead because of course it's your dad, but as you say, it's all the others as well. Well, my father was my adversary and I use adversary really, you know, I couldn't have chosen a better adversary to hone my thinking. I mean, he made me so angry. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to hit his head against the wall a lot of times, but um, when he was alive, because he had rejected his parents' fundamentalist religion. And rightly so. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, rightly so. But all he had in its place was fundamentalist science. And, and that is, and all, he, you know what I mean? And so he is this model of the 20th century man, right? He often said, I named you Perdita. My name means lost. Because what else do you call a child born in the 20th century but perdition? I mean, <laughs> okay, that's my dad. So is Thanks, dad. Like a curse at the, wow, okay. Curse, but it, and you've read the book and so you know it's yeah. also a blessing. Yes. And, and, and the unfolding of that. There are vast mysteries around us. And, and I want to often say that I'm not very interested in God, believing in God or not believing in God both bore me to tears. I'm just not interested in God. I'm interested in what my daughter calls the animate everything. And what we have forgotten in the modern world is that everything is alive. And when we remember that the dead are alive, everything comes back to life. And in my book, stones come back to life. You know, and I mean that not metaphorically, Carmen. 
I mean that really truly. And suddenly you we aren't alone, right? Both, both religion and science emerge from that same agricultural desire to control the planet. We're gonna control it through a religion, through monotheism, through all of the, and we're gonna kind of control the means of production. And science is the literal way we do that controlling, right? Not that I'm anti-science, but I'm anti-fundamentalist science. I'm very anti-religion, but I'm not anti-spirituality. So, <laughs> yeah. um, and what does it mean to have the world begin speaking to us again in a plethora of voices? That in our modern world, from my father, who was, you know, born in the 1920s and grew up through World War II, that meant you might be crazy. For my mother, you know, her brother was the head of psychiatry at Harvard. Her mother had been in and out of mental hospitals. To, to imagine that one would might be in conversation with voices would get you put in the hospital. And yet both my parents were fundamentally animists who didn't know it. Mm. Mm -hmm. And that's where the frustration came to me as a child. Because they lived this, they knew it in their bodies, their love of the earth, of animals, of plants, of the stars, of the ocean. They were very wild beings, but they didn't know what they were doing. Mm. And it, they they didn't know how to be in that conversation and experience its consolations. Mm, consolations, beautiful word. I want to talk about mothers and and motherhood, but let's start with motherhood. Let's start close in with you and me. So I know every child is special. However, <laughs> I think we, you and I, are both mothers of children who are particularly enchanted expressions of humanness and they suffer from ill health and both of us have been tracking collapse for a long time the environmental crisis I know for me as the parent of a trans child all of our questions about transitioning have been in the context of like what happens in the collapse of medical systems and in contraction of resources when your biology is tied to large scale government infrastructures like the medical system, as we all will be when we die, but it 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 has been part of our conversations as a as a family. So when it comes to ill health, like I've never been a person who's like kind of holding out for cures or that kind of thing. I'm always thinking about care. How, how what care is appropriate and what can I put in place? So how do you as a mother manage the stress in terms of this planetary crisis? Uh, and, and I'm just, I'm looking for advice. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go really slowly. You know, my whole next book is about this. Oh. I have a whole other book I want to write about this called the body of my mother. Mm -hmm. And, and we are, I just want to begin by saying that the whole project of motherhood inside of ecocidal patriarchal capitalism is designed for failure. And I think it's important to note that, that mothers are set up to fail for a very long time indeed. 
and and they are both sentimentalized and demonized in equal parts but they bear the burden of society's ills and and i really my i have a fierce fury about what we've done to mothers and the way we've isolated them in this culture practically spiritually every way we could and then we blame them for not doing a good job and um so it's an impossible job <laughs> in this culture um with systems that are not designed to be friendly and support us and help us and then you add in illness and stress on top of that and it really can push you to your limits i mean um for those listening who don't know uh, 13 years ago, my daughter became mysteriously ill and I was a doctor's daughter. I had a faith in medicine. I had a faith that with, you know, the right level of smarts, you could find the guy, it was always a guy who would, you know, <laughs> give the test, figure the problem out and give us yeah. the pill, right? Like that, that was, so we began this process and that meant going, spending all of our money. I mean, really spending all of our money, retirement, second mortgage, credit cards maxed out and debt to the IRS and arriving at the other side of it with mystery mm. and a child getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And it's often at those moments when of collapse, when we re experience, you know, collapse is an ongoing experience, you know, the educational system, the medical system, everything, right, is collapsing. But when we confront it personally and intimately, my husband and I had been writing about climate change and thinking about it since the early 1990s together. Um, and we're very, you know, we were on climate.org when you started to do dial up on your computer, you know, we were really, and his brother's a population geneticist. Our best friend wrote the book, The World Without Us about climate change. So, so, so we've been very involved in this conversation. What is the spiritual response to climate change? But I think that converse, and when this all was going on, my husband had started a group with a lot of people from Occupy called Excess Anonymous. How do we sober up from civilization? What does that look like? What does it mean? And then our kid has an autoimmune illness and, or something that's, a, her body's collapsing. And suddenly it's intimate in a whole new way. And what is this, what is the solution? And that journey, that 13 year journey has been transformed our family and each of us individually. It's transformed my daughter. There has been no pill. She's not going back to being who she was. She is transformed. I'm transformed. My husband is transformed. My son is transformed. And our family has experienced tremendous healing but healing is not always pretty and it's not always easy it can be terrifying um what i have found in this journey for me my relationship to those on the other side to the dead to the animate everything become very real you're sitting in an er and you don't know if your kid is going to make it and i'm calling in every single miracle i can and every single person I can, and I have experienced miracles again and again and again. And, and we had no money. 
you know, we you remove the, you know, we live, we have the luxury because we live inside an economy of money of not having to rely on an economy of prayer. But our ancestors had only had prayer for food, for healing. They needed dreams to know what medicine to take. They needed to ask their ancestors about where to go to find the herds, seek shelter, to find warmth, to find another group of people to have fall in love with and have babies with. There weren't a lot of people around, you know, we had to hope we run into somebody, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so, so we began to learn about prayer. And it's a really hard question. And it, those questions that were very intimate about prayer in our family with our daughter became very much part of our questions about the earth. You know, it's very hard to trust the earth. I often say, you know, mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who trust women to make the right decisions about their own bodies. And my book talks about my decision to have an abortion and why that is such a powerful decision for women to make and it's it's a can be a real initiation into the underworld experience if we want it to be i teach workshops on that i think it's really important i don't i don't call these souls who show up at, for these soul appointments children i call them souls who know mm -hmm. we can birth them into our lives but show up because they've got work they want to do with us mm -hmm. not necessarily as children but as beings so I, but do we trust the earth herself, their selves, its multiplicitous self to make the right choices for their body? Mm. And we as humans are so arrogant that we think we know what's best for the earth's body. And you asked me in the beginning how I identified and I don't identify as a human being. I don't want to. I don't talk about my humanity, my humanness. I, I, I'm appalled at my species. Mm. I've got to be an animal again. Mm. I want to learn to live like an animal and eat like an animal and die like an animal again. And I believe our ancestors knew this. They called themselves the salmon people or the reindeer people or the bison people because they experience themselves as moving incarnationally from one embodied experience to another embodied experience. One moment I'm being eaten, the next life mm. I'm doing the eating. Mm -hmm. Back and I think it's why you don't see human representation in ancient Paleolithic cave art mm. because people didn't, they weren't concerned with this, they were concerned with their animal selves, their bear mm. self, their bear body, their mm. fungal body, their tree body. And so I try to ask a question I've learned to ask myself, it's no fun, is how is this, this catastrophe, this roadblock, this awful, terrifying moment, an answer to my prayers? Mm. And, and I think when we pray about collapse, and I do, <laughs> we have to know when our prayers are being answered. And sometimes those prayers being answered are not going to be beautiful or mm. easy. Mm. They're going to be terrifying mm. and transformational. Mm. We're not getting back to Eden. 
because Eden never existed. Nature's not static. Nature's not nostalgic. Nature's not trying to get back somewhere. Nature's looking and saying, what next? Dance. How do we play? I want to be part of that dance and I want to be part of that play. Mm. Mm. So your mom, <laughs> complex figure. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't quite sure what to make of her very multi faceted why do you think she was your mom in this life and what's left to heal in that relationship in this life or another I think a hundred times when I was writing this book I had to say to my mother this is not your book it's my book a <laughs> hundred times my mother was larger than life. She was. I think everyone's mother is larger than life in their hearts and mm -hmm. larger in their souls. And we don't have, we have to ask so much of our mothers. They have to be our goddesses and our witches and our mothers and our, they have to contain it all. And I think people used to feel circled by mothers and circled by grandmothers. And many, many people could take on their own. And I don't think mother should be a gendered experience. I mean, I always say, well, really, no, we've transformed when young teenage boys want to be mothers. I have a son like mm -hmm. that. He wants to be a mother. He's a mother. Mm -hmm. And he he can really embrace that about himself. And mm -hmm. what would it like to be a mother in the world? Mm -hmm. And, but my own mother, by the time she died, we were really healed. And, and she had dementia at the end of her life, vascular dementia. And I brought her to live with me in a moment of abject terror. I brought her to live with me because she was an imperious, entitled, <laughs> impossible being. And I was panic stricken. Yeah. What she forgot in her dementia, um, you know, was 80 years of anxiety and she became quite a pussycat when she was brought into our home to live. And in fact, for my children, it was profound. They would sleep with her, they'd get into bed with her. My daughter, who will write in her next book a great deal about her grandmother and what that year meant to her, felt safe because her grandmother didn't remember anything. So she could become the safest of confidants to her. Mm. And And so... My mother died in my arms and it was a great gift when someone gives you their death. And she began showing up immediately and we began playing together immediately from the other side. And she showed up for my children. I have a great sense of, you know, I wanna, I wanna give, do a, a, give her a book that does her justice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And my grandmother's justice, because she was she was a feral, she was a wild, her great gift to me was she was a wild animal. And she was not very tame. But like when my husband met her the first time, he said, wow, you didn't tell me your mother was a witch. Yeah. <laughs> and that was kind of people's reaction to her. Mm. She had no shame. She had no, she had no shame about her sexuality, no shame about her body, its appetite. She'd wander around the house naked, you know. 
she delighted in our sexuality and her sexuality. She was very creative, the animal sexuality. She never said no to an animal, a plant, a being. <laughs> but, you know, it's not easy being that person in this culture. And so, you know, she became quite addicted to alcohol and that made really a relationship with her impossible. And also she was very mistrustful of other women as women can be in our culture. And that became, she was mistrustful of me. Mm. And and I think that, um, I mean, one of the things I'm really fascinated about is women's mistrust of each other and where that comes from and its origins and how we heal those wounds. Mm. Mm. So this book, you, you know, you talked about your your mom came to you immediately. There, there's beautiful correspondence um, and connection with the dead, but there's also so many synchronicities. It's, this book is just full of, of chance encounters that are, you know, meaningful. There, there's so many of them that at times they almost seem like the marginalia, like they're, 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 they're just like, and you might want to know, and you, you probably left a whole bunch of them out, but one Most of that them out. jumps, <laughs> yeah, I bet w one that jumps out is like, you're, a young person on a train in Europe and there's a man in your, your, your car and it, you're having a very interesting conversation. He tells you about the, the, the Cathars or the Qatars and you discover later, he's the guy who wrote Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which of course now is famous for being one of the source um, materials for the Da Vinci Code. Um, you, you know, your parents went on this epic trip in France and uh, essentially a pilgrimage uh, to the same places where Mary Magdalene went and these places near or, you know, uh, roundabouts where you would have these, you know, major spiritual openings. Um, do you think with prayer and devotion, we can invite more synchronicity or like signs like that, you know, signs from above uh, in our lives? Or do you think they're just like happening and we're just not connecting the dots? Both both i think both are happening all the time right and i think what i think they become our confirmation the playfulness of the other side right the punning the twinning the slyness the trickster quality of the other side it's inviting us to be playful and it's inviting us to be light right and a certain lightness and but i also you know i work with students who all have these experiences when I start teaching them how to pay attention to them. Mm. I start sometimes asking people, where were you born and when? Because we know that astrology has information for us, but the very place you were born has information. It's not arbitrary. The day you were born is not just arbitrary in terms of the stars, but in terms of what I call the paper folds of time and space. So for instance, I was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts and Mount Auburn Hospital, okay, next to one of the biggest, most beautiful cemeteries in the world, mm. right? Mm -hmm. I was born looking out, my mother's room looked out over the dead. Mm. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a woman in my class, she was conceived on the day of the dead. She knew this. Do you know what I mean? Like suddenly mm -hmm. people start to tap into this information 
And I think astrology is all we have left of it. We have these kind of remnants of things people used to know that where you're born, when you're born, how you're born. I was born in the middle of a blizzard. You know, a snow was very important to me. And, mm -hmm. and you know, the whole experience with Henry Lincoln, it comes because I had, you know, this panic attack on a junior year abroad and on in a train. And I didn't know it was Henry Lincoln until about seven or eight years ago. <laughs> I kept a journal and I described this man and I was actually in touch with a woman who knew him. And I was talking about this experience and she said, who was it? And I said, he was somebody who knew a lot about the Cathars. And she said, I'm gonna send you some photographs. Could you pick him out from that period of time? I said, I could pick him. <laughs> and I said, who's that guy? And she said, that's Henry Lincoln. I said, that was the guy. <laughs> that's so, amazing. So it was, sometimes you only put the pieces together retrospectively and that's why i you know um dream journals are a wonderful thing to keep because we leave our we leave ourselves breadcrumbs right mm -hmm. but here's the thing about breadcrumbs we always forget from that fairy tale the breadcrumbs crumbs are not going to bring us back to the woodcutter's house they're not going to bring us back to civilization they're actually going to get us lost in the forest mm. The breadcrumbs get eaten by the birds. The children never find their way home because of them. Mm -hmm. They find themselves in the darkness. And mm -hmm. it's in the darkness that the mystery unfolds. You can't, you can't turn on the lights and experience the mystery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can I tell you a story about land? So on TikTok recently, somebody was sending me all these TikToks of this Scottish guy who is driving along and, uh, he's in Canada. And it turns out, in fact, he's not far from where I live. He's on Vancouver Island. And he's saying, I can't get over how much Canada, which of course he's speaking broadly, but he means this particular spot where I live looks so much like the Highlands. And he's pointing at this lake, which I immediately go, oh, that's Cameron Lake. And he's saying, I'm telling you, this is Loch Lomond. This is Loch Lomond. So my people who are from the Highlands, my, my way back people, are that's the lineage that I am so connected to, my natural lineage. And one day I was um, looking through archives and my great, great, great grandmother had... Um, at some point in some journal described where she was from in a way that we don't describe it these days. And so it's a little bit tricky to find on the map because it was kind of like, they, she was talking about sort of a general region between these two places. And uh, now a days on Google maps, I can see that they've kind of reduced it to call it Tulloch Delny. So I'm looking on Google maps and I get to the place where I'm like, it sounds like she's talking about growing up in this place here. And so I, change the view from map to street view and this image comes up and I'm like what that looks exactly like the view where my grandmother who you know so like after generations of uh you know three generations they moved out to Vancouver Island my great-grandma you know uh, bought this place and this view looked exactly like this place in Couchin Bay four ways corner in couch and bay that was like kitty corner from my grandma's house. So I take a screenshot and I send it to my auntie Karen and I say, Hey, do you recognize this place? 
And she says, yeah, that's the corner down at Four Ways. And I said, no, it's not. It's to look down me in Scotland. <laughs> she said, what? I said, you know, so multiple generations later, we're still orienting to this landscape as a reflection of, of self and familiarity. And I often talk about how like every spring I get very wistful for sheep, nothing, I'll, I'll be so sad. And Ruben will say, what, what can I bring you, my queen? What can I bring you, my love? And I'm like, sheep, I want to hear the bleating of sheep right now and nothing. <laughs> and it's so ironic when you think about the Scottish history. But anyway, I just totally relate to those things that you only put together later and that there does seem to be something epigenetic almost about seasons that kind of where I sudden, suddenly an ennui unfurls. <laughs> I have no idea where it came from, you know? Well, if we think of time and space, not as linear and flat, but folded over each other in a kind of 10 dimensional origami, we can experience what I call the paper folds of time and space. And we experience this in our dreams, right? Where a place is two places at once. Oh, it's my mother's house and somewhere else. It's we, <laughs> right. It's, it's Scotland and it's Vancouver. and Walmart. Yeah. Or something. It, <laughs> it's two places at once. And, and a person can be two people at once too, or many people at once. You know, well, Whitman said, I contain multitudes and he meant it. Hmm. He meant he could feel the multiplicity of lives within him. I, you know, I've been having a deep dive with Mark Twain lately, who I love. And hmm. Mark Twain begins his biography saying, I've been born more times than Krishna. And he knows that there are things that he can't, he's tapping into and he doesn't know why. Hmm. Right. And we all have that. We have predilections, things we love, we can't explain, be it sheep. Or for Mark Twain, it was Joan of Arc. He hated France. He hated religion. And he was devoted to Joan of Arc. Wow. Mark Twain. I mean, weird, right? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> it's so weird. And then, so we have these weird talents or predilections. I want, I have to go here, right? I, my soul is called here. Totally. And then we all, and then we have aversions. For instance, mm -hmm. I won't go to Spain. Like I, I could go to, you could give me a free ticket to Spain and I wouldn't go. It's the strangest thing I love. I, I don't want, I don't know what it is. And then I was reading this book, um, marvelous book called the people of the book by Geraldine Brooks. And, uh, I got to the expulsion of the Jews in 1492 and suddenly I found myself in tears. Mm -hmm. I thought that's it, isn't it? That's it. I'm not going back to your damn country. Mm. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, oh, I totally I know it. what you mean. Got it. Yep. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. You kicked me out. I'm not coming back. <laughs> I'm not going totally. back in this lifetime. No lifetime. I will not go there. And totally. I think we have those things, right? Like I've watched it with my children. You have children. I'm sure, you know, what do they love? What do they hate? What are their weird obsessions? Yeah, yeah totally. I, I totally get what you mean. And especially about the Joan of Arc and the France and the Cathars and Magdalene. So you had some very interesting, at this point, if we had a live spirit, um, live studio audience, I'd be like, okay, every spiritual girly or person uh, who has intense experiences and strong feelings towards Mary Magdalene, 
Joan of Arc, the Cathars, and past life experiences with their children, put up your hands. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, I want us to all self-identify. So you went to France, you had these very arresting spiritual experiences and very near where places where I also experienced a similar thing, really intense nausea. Um, and it would be so instant and severe. Like, it's like, I would literally cross, you know, here I'm fine. And 10 feet, once I walk into the, you know, stone ruin or something, it's like I was, I walked into a wall of confusion and dizziness and overwhelm and shortness of breath. And it seemed like, you know, right afterwards, we would discover that like, oh, the, the Cathars were um, uh, killed here. This was, uh, you know, some other atrocity there. And I've, I've had similar experiences in sites in like Greece and Panama. And what becomes very clear to me once I kind of catch my breath and stop feeling so sweaty is um, it feels like I've walked into a vortex of trauma of which I bear some complicity, sometimes as perpetrator, sometimes as victim. It, it all feels like those 10 dimensions folded over. And it's almost like I'm called in this repetition compulsion to like return to the scene of the crime. I don't know about these things. We're just driving along the road and I'm like, Monsegur, hmm, ancient ruins, let's go there. And it's like the absolute site of a bloodbath. Um, so I've wondered, like, is it the soul's attraction and the comfort of the familiar that draws me there? Or is it something that's unresolved and I'm meant to bring that to conscious awareness to try to end this repetition compulsion and make it right somehow? So my, my question to you, like in a nutshell, would be like, do you believe the soul has destiny to be fulfilled? Is that why we're drawn? What's the, the word like destiny? is it doesn't, it's so, it's got a final point, right? It's got an end point. It's a linear concept. And I like to think in circles, not lines, because most of nature thinks in circles, not lines, right? Nature, the moon waxes and what's the moon's destiny? It waxes and it wanes. <laughs> it shines and it doesn't shine. It plays in the sky with the stars and the planets and the clouds and the earth and the sun. I don't know what the moon's destiny is or the sun's destiny, but I can enjoy their dance and dance with them. And so I think we're dancing. I mean, have you ever been to one of those country dances where people are in like, you know, it's like sort of Jane Austen or a contra dance. You know, like you line dancing. Quite line dancing, but circle dancing, old okay. fashioned folk dancing. And you start in a circle with yes. a group of people and you partner off when you have little groups and then that group changes and it goes with another group and then there's another group and then, and then you find your way back to your original group and then. Right. It's like square dancing. I, mm -hmm. The dance. Mm -hmm. the, you know, I just finished this book, um, Maniac by Benjamin Labatute about the development of artificial intelligence. <laughs> and it's a terrifying book. It's about the people who invented computers. And their underlying concept and idea is always us versus them winning. Who's mm. going to win? Who's going to win the Cold War? Who's going to win and make the biggest bomb? Who's going to win the game, be it chess or Go? And, and AI, that we what we've forgotten is the underpinning of AI is winning. Mm. But the planet isn't interested in winning. The planet is interested in play and dancing and creativity, right? How many different ways can we create and make a flower? How many different expressions of tree 
are possible. What about beetles? The planet is fascinated by the complexity and diversity of beetles. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, so how do we enter into that spirit? And I think that more than destiny is what interests me. Um, in terms of the Cathars, I've been fascinated about them and I've read hooplas. But I think one of the problems when we start to talk about the Cathars is we have to remember that the genocide was successful. Mm-hmm. And because the genocide was so successful, so much so that Hitler and Himmler studied it, their texts were eradicated, their stories were eradicated, their ways of being were eradicated, propaganda was put out there. And so the problem with them is a lot of people start saying things about the Cathars that is actually the propaganda against them of the Christian mm. church. And mm. there was an Italian researcher who asked a question about them in her book, The Yellow Cross, I forget her name. The Yellow Cross was, they made identified them by making them wear a yellow cross, just as Hitler would have Jews identified by wearing the Star of David. And this process of identification preceded the genocide, which was really the important piece that they took away from the Catholic church. Mm. But her question in the book, The Yellow Cross, is how come so many ordinary people wanted to join the good men and the good women? Because that's what they called themselves. Why did they want to be the problem? You know, somebody would go to preach against the Cathars and everybody would become a Catholic. (laughs) So there was something. So, and people don't really, ordinary people in ordinary villages don't want to join some weird, ascetical Gnostic hoo-ha. Do you know what I mean? It's always like four mystical people are going to do that. But no, ordinary people said, oh yeah, this is. And what they believed in was reincarnation. And that fundamental belief in reincarnation is actually what undermines patriarchy. And it undermines institutional authority it undermines property ideas of live. It undermines even the idea of lineage. I, lineage is not a word I like. By the mm-hmm. way, I always tell people, don't ever talk about your matrilineal line because you are not a line, you are a sphere. Talk about <laughs> your matrilineal <laughs> Matrospherical <laughs> beings. Matrospherical yeah. root system that you are, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. So, And reincarnation undermines power and authority because it says you're a king in this life and you may be reborn as my cow in the next life Mm -hmm. okay it means that the child may be the wisest person among us and not the scholar Mm -hmm. it completely undoes our notions of hierarchical elitism and the counters believed in reincarnation And that meant they believed in the equality of the sexes. It it meant they were not really beholden to ideas of property and ownership. It meant they were vegetarians. It meant they were against the death penalty. It, It produced in them a kind of empathic, expansive way of being that, and here's the other thing, those people in those villages, 
in medieval Europe, they lived in those villages, some of them for five to 8,000 years. Hmm. And prior to the arrival of Christianity and the Roman Empire in toxic combination, they lived an indigenous reincarnate relationship with the seasons where all things disappeared and all things came back. Hmm. So this way of being in the world very naturally aligned with their experience of the natural world, which they lived in relationship with. So I think that's why the Cathars were so popular. And I think the reason we're not gonna become Cathars again, we don't really know how they lived or what they did. But what I would say to people is that when you tap into the multiplicity of the long story of your soul, not just I was so-and-so, but I have been so many beings. Mm-hmm. I've been male and female and genders I can't even imagine. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I have been plants and animals and fungi. I have been a victim and then I've probably been a villain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that begins to happen the more we work with the dad and the more we tap in to the long story of our souls is that we begin to realize we've all been each other's mothers lifetime upon lifetime in the billions of years on this planet. And what does it mean to know we are all each other's mothers? Mm -hmm. We are the mother of the prisoner in solitary confinement year after year. We are the mother of the child being bombed right now all around the world. And we're the mother of the soldier and we're the mother of the person pushing the bomb. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be mother in the world? And that brings us back to your question about mothers and the need to have everyone start showing up as mothers. You know, I said my husband started this group, Excess Anonymous. And the problem was in 12-step work, it's pretty straightforward. Don't drink alcohol, right? <laughs> Get sober, no alcohol. For, for me, no sugar. That's my sobriety. But what does it mean to sober up from civilization? How do we sober up from this ecocidal madness and our addiction to civilization so that we can embrace collapse when it comes? Mm-hmm. And to me, the sobriety is the long story of our souls. Mm-hmm. And that is the sobriety the Cathars had. And it's why they went to their deaths singing. Mm-hmm. Because they knew that death wasn't the end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You you kind of saved this reincarnation discussion to the end of the book, your last chapter, the 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 long story is always a love story is absolutely delightful. It really did feel like this like exciting kind of crescendo. Like I was like, ooh, it's getting so juicy now. And uh it it had me remembering a bunch of things um from my lifetime that felt resonant, but there's my so I, I don't know if you know this, but my my first formal training in as a therapeutic helper was as in doing past life regression. And so I, I did, did that for that. <laughs> yes, I did that for many years before I became a clinical hypnotherapist and was working more with trauma and people with DSM-5 diagnoses. But prior to that, this was my my entree. And I apprenticed with Dr. Johnny Gray and became um certified with her. So that so I've done I don't know, hundreds, if not over a thousand uh, regressions individually and in group, and of course, many myself. And so, um, however, prior to that, 
when my child, so this is before I'd done the training by a few years, what precipitated it was I had found at this very swanky home store in the dented, you know, in the clearance in the very back, there was um, a miniature version of like a Victorian uh, tea set in um, silver. So it was the silver plate is, you know, such a swing. I could never have afforded this as like a single parent, but it was like 70% off because it was tarnished and, and dented. And so I had this little tea set in silver plate from the swanky store. I brought it home to my kiddo and uh, we were playing with it. And it, my child was always very precocious, you know, um, could speak in full sentences very early, just, you know, that kind of thing. And so at three <laughs> years old, yeah. And so we're having tea and they say to me, oh, mommy, this is just like when I was your grandmother and you used to come for tea. And so Everything in my body, I'd never had such an immediate, somatic, full body kind of vacating where I just felt, I felt both huge and empty at the same time. And at the time, I didn't know what to call it. I, I thought it was fear. Now I would say, oh, that's the numinous, right? The, the numinous tremendum at fascinance, where it's like, whoa, you're overwhelmed. But it, it's this fascinating glimpse into like eternity, basically glimpse into the cosmos. And I kind of blanched and then said, tell me more about that. <laughs> and my child just went on and on about, oh, you would come with the horse and did it. And and I, and I was like shaking because everything in my body resonated with truth. And so I'm curious if you've ever had a moment similar where it's like, oh, this all sounds really great, but then sometimes it hits you and, and you can feel so small with the vastness of it all. Like, do you ever feel afraid or just like, kind of like you're disappearing into the mystery and it's just too much? Question. Um... I think I used to before I got grounded with the dead. Mm. And you know how troops, trees did not know how to grow roots in the beginning. And the, the mycelium had to teach them how to grow roots and they were mm. their root systems in the beginning. Mm. The dead have given me roots and the dead have shown me how to root myself to the earth. And so, and, and very profoundly, very intimately and very specifically. So, I would often feel undone by those experiences in my life prior to having a clear relationship with the dead. Terrified. I got into psychoanalysis in my 20s because those experiences of the numinous were terrifying me. And I did feel like I was going to dissolve inside of them. Like, who am I? I mean, I, I would find myself going, my gosh, I don't know who I am. I don't know where I am. I don't know why I am. And so it was frequently, I, those were frequent experiences I think what I feel now lately is just that there's not enough time for love hmm. and that the good news is there's all the time in the world for love <laughs> and there is not enough time in this life for the ones I've been reunited with my children, my husband, the people I'm meeting. And, you know, I mean, I'm meeting extraordinary people on this, podcast book tour that I feel are like soul sisters. Like, you, do you know what I mean? Like, 
oh, I feel like I want to have you over. Now we're going to oh have the soup and we're going to sit up to three o'clock in the morning around candlelight and we're going to talk and talk and talk. I mean, there's just not enough time. And I think, you know, my favorite movie about reincarnation, my very, I think it's the wisest movie ever made. Probably the best gospel about reincarnation is Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. Gen Xer, yeah. I totally know this one. It's a wise, <laughs> wise movie. Sophie and Clark and Joan and I often say like, I wonder what day this person is in their life. <laughs> like they're still, they still think they're in the realm of the gods or they still think they can game everything. Or they think they, you know, there are people who's like, oh, I don't want to be reborn. And I'm going to feel like, I know this life has been really hard. You're not going to live the same life again. And my prayer is you begin to tap into the prayers that will lead you back to love. Mm. Because once you begin to experience that entangled root system of love, you don't want to be anywhere else. Mm. You just mm -hmm. want to be reborn to it again and again and again. <laughs> and maybe it'll be a new configuration. Maybe your grandchild will become your grandmother. They're, they're, oh, your child becomes your lover. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. or, I mean, I mean, there's so many different configurations of love mm -hmm. and ways to love each other mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that we can express and experience. So, yeah, yeah. That I think, I think, I mostly these days just feel awed by how much love there is in the world. Even so, even so, in the face of rampant atrocities everywhere mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if we get a big picture view and step back for a moment your family seems to have written a trilogy by three different authors and three different points of view so your daughter Sophie Strand was recently on the show we talked about her book the Madonna Secret which is about Mary Magdalene in 2019, for folks who don't know, you co-wrote the book, The Way of the Rose, with your husband, Clark Strand, which is about pre-Christian origins of the rosary and pre-patriarchal goddess worship encoded in the mythology and iconography of the Virgin Mary and the Black Madonna. And so these also touch on themes, uh, you know, like the Cathars and, and all of that, and Take Back the Magic you you are talking about these themes and then the last chapter you get to all these juicy bits about how your connection as a family seems woven through time and space across lifetimes so part of me was like what is the deal with this when I started because I you know I read way of the rose when it came out I listened to it on audiobook as like my comfort thing to fall asleep to then I read this book and I'm like well surely Clark's you know I should read the dark his one about the darkness, because that probably ties it in. What do you think is the overarching message of the goddess or who you call the lady um, through all these works? And and why do you suppose the three of you so far, maybe Jonah's going to have, maybe your son will make it an even four, but why do you suppose you all felt compelled to write about this theme? Like what is the goddess trying to to channel through you? Well, we always joke that our writing is all about the dark, the dirt, and the dead. And you know, that's what we write about. And we're all we're all devotees of the earth. And I think I think we're devoted to the earth. And devotion 
is a word I love. We don't talk about it much anymore, but devow means to bring our speech and our words down and to bring them down to the ground and get grounded again. You know, devotion, the expression of devotion is to lay our bodies on the earth. And that is what people would do in front of these black Madonnas. They would prostrate themselves on the earth in front of them because they wanted to press their bodies against her body. And, and I think that we are animists. I mean, I, I think we are radical animists. I don't, I don't, you know, you asked about my own parents and I said they were animists who raised me. You know, my mother did not ever say, my parents didn't say no to an animal, which meant we had 15 cats, innumerable dogs, guinea pigs, hamsters. We had a bork and an iguana. I, I mean, I can't even describe what it was like to be in my house with so many plants and animals. My father worked with the local vet because he loved animals so much. He died in my arms, holding on to the head of his golden retriever who died three days later. So, I mean, my parents believed that plants and animals were a lot. My mother talked to her plants, not as a like methodology, but because she loved them. I once said to her, how, do you, how are you such a good gardener? And she said, I just put the plants where they like to be. And I said, how do you know that? And she said, I don't know. You listen to them. You know, I mean, like, so, and I raised my children, my husband and I, we met our second date. We went out into the, we lived in New York city and our second date, we got on a train and went out into the woods together. And we raised our kids. We got out of the city as fast as we could. And we filled our house with animals. We rescued wild animals when they were little. And it, we, we live in a little collapsing Baba Yaga hut that is open to the elements and our animals. We have bears in our backyard and chipmunks in our kitchen. And, you know, we rescued swans and we once had, you know, 60 baby possums and the children were all nursing them with eyedroppers. And so you ask me, what does the earth want? What does the earth want? What do I think the mother wants? I think that's the question all three of us. And my son is a is a permaculture farmer. Mm. And so he is very interested in thinking about what does it mean to grow food, to eat food, to be food, about what he thinks very deeply from the ground up. His book probably will come when he's 45. You know what I mean? Like he's it's coming slowly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> very mm -hmm. different energy than his sister. But... Um, I think our devotion to the earth is a devotion. I never think of the mother or the goddess color. I always say the opposite of God is not goddess. The opposite of God is everything hmm. in its blessed particularity in its blessed individuality that these, the fabric, we often talk about the veil, right? The other side of the veil, but the veil itself, is made of each of our souls woven together across the eons. Our souls are the veil. The veil of reality is our soul. Hmm. And, the, and, and so we cannot be lost from this earth. We cannot forsake it. You know, she's got, the earth has got us. I think one of the most beautiful spiritual texts I've read lately 
Um, Sophie Clark and I've all read it. <laughs> we we were we're very we have a lot of ferment in our family. We all share books. <laughs> Sophie grew up listening to Clark and I talk about all this, and now she makes sure we're reading what she's reading. And you, you know, we're all <laughs> yeah. And is Other Lands by Thomas Halliday, and he's this Cambridge PhD about paleo life, right? And he's written a book going backwards, looking at extinction events. Mm. But the book is, as far as I can tell, is completely channeled. <laughs> okay. It's like it's completely channeled. Like, and what it shows you is the exuberance of the natural world. And that there are these contractions of life. And just like we go to sleep at night, the day reaches its end and we go to sleep, blessedly often. Mm-hmm. And we wake up to a new day, like it's a new piece of paper, right? Just so we die and wake up again to a new life. Just so life contracts on the planet. And he said that these contractions, terrible as they are to experience. And he, you know, he talks about, you know, the 30,000 years it rains glass. And you know what I mean? He looks at all these moments of, you know, like, oh, that was a bad moment, right? You know, that was no fun. <laughs> So these contractions that allow for new expressions of creativity, Mm. right? So my prayer, and I think Sophie's prayer and Clark's prayer, I often say, what's your prayer? What's the prayer you would carry for lifetimes? And my prayer is that life continues on this planet. I think it's Sophie's prayer and Clark's prayer. Our prayer is for life and all its vast, wild, erotic exuberance. And I think that's what people feel when they read The Madonna Secret is the exuberance of that life in her book, right? It's not about Jesus as a singularity, mm-hmm. but it's about the whole ecosystem. And you know that prayer, those prayers, how do they manifest in my actual life? I wanna be a grandmother. I want to hold, someday I want to hold, my image I hold in my heart is I'm a little old lady, like I'm 94 and I'm a little apple lady, you know, my little tight sweater on. And I want to hold the baby and know that I'm looking at the face of my mother. Hmm. And I want, and my daughter wants to be a mother. And my son wants to be a mother. And the desire for erotic continuance is this to align ourselves with that green wick of the life force on earth. It's to align ourselves with the chicory that's pushing up through the asphalt, even so right now, to break it down and regreen it and make life come back. Mm. Mm. We have to align ourselves with that erotic animism. So that's what I'd, I, the only thing I've been able to say is that we're all erotic animists, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Well, and it, it is very evident in, in all your works. And it's just so uh, lovely to see you've all dropped in together in this lifetime and 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 like model this erotic relationship with the sensuousness of all life. It's beautiful. So as we're coming to the last question, I, I think we can hear in everything you've said, how you cope with grief and rage. It's your manner of approach to life. But 
let's get down to brass tacks, Perdita. You know, you're a woman, you've seen a lot of things. <laughs> when it comes down to like you and you're just like muddling through and you, you experience things that pierce your heart, how do you personally cope with grief and with rage? I think grief and rage are two different experiences. So grief, grief is important, you know, and grief, if I can talk about them differently, separately, I will. 100%. Let's yeah, with, it's two I'm questions. Start with, actually, let's start with rage. Okay. <laughs> I have no trouble with rage. And I always, I always think like, better to be angry than to be depressed. Hmm. Like, first of all, you know, I, I, I have a Irish ferocity to me you know oh yeah there's some stories in your book I was like oh that's relatable content I can get really angry and 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 and, but anger is also intimacy anger you know my husband grew up in a very formal family and every when I first met them I thought oh my gosh they're so nice they're so nice like my family's so loud and mean you know they're so nice but they're not intimate and when it wasn't safe to get angry at people and for what it's worth, that people, when you can get angry at someone, it's because you're safe enough with them to be angry at them. And it's one of the things I try to tell parents. You know, if your kid is yelling at you and screaming at you, it's because they can, they can do that. Hooray. Check one for you. You know what I mean? That's a good thing. Hmm. And what does it mean to be able to be angry, at, to, to be angry and to be, to express our rage? Now, what about... Rage is different, you know. I, you know, people hurt my daughter. And and there have been people who have hurt people I love. And I will be honest, I can curse the living. And I can say, when you're dead, you better make amends. I don't, I mean, I often say I'm not frightened of the dead and I'm not, none of the dead. Ghost of Hitler doesn't scare me, but the living terrify the bejesus out of me. I feel very angry at the behavior of many living human beings. And I'm not quiet about it. Hmm. I'm appalled. And I don't keep my mouth shut. I mean, the great pleasure of being a 60-year-old woman is I don't need to please anyone anymore. <laughs> you know? May I be known as a terrifying witch. And But I don't fear the other side. And the dead can tolerate our rage and they can also understand it and hear it. So when people pass to the other side, it's a real opportunity to sometimes we can't be angry at the living it's not safe and it's only after they die for instance my father uh, uh, my father-in-law died last summer and my husband he was 91 my husband thought he'd made amends over their issues and but it was only after he died that he realized it was safe enough for him to be angry at him and my, my answer is be as angry as you want you can handle it he's dead go for it it's his responsibility to make amends to you. And that's the curse I lay on the living who are hurting things right now. Your curse is that when you die, you will see what you have done to your children. 
because you are woven together with everyone. May you know the long story of your soul. May you see what you have done and may you start making some amends for the eons hence mm. for what you have done. But we're all going to have that comeuppance to a certain degree because we don't see with the eyes of the dead. Mm -hmm. We're all making mistakes and we all are going to mess up and want to But yeah, mm. I'm not, but as to grief, oh, it's the other side of joy. Everyone we love will come back to us and everyone we love will die. Death is real. Everything dies. Trees die, planets die, solar systems die, and we die. No, it's not a mistake. It's not an accident. It's not a failure of your fitness program. It's what happens. <laughs> and so that inevitability is always painful. Just like every departure is painful, right? And every reunion is joyful and blessed. <laughs> and we'll all be reunited with each other again and again and again. So how do we, joy and sorrow are the flip coin of that reality. On one side, death and departure. On the other side, love and reunion. Mm. Beautiful. Perdita, I'm so grateful to all of the beings in the seen and unseen who helped you bring this work forth. And, uh, and it feels good. I think all the listeners and especially those who've, uh, followed, uh, your career Clark's and Sophie's can kind of rest in this lovely experience. It's like my mirror neurons are delighted and flashing that you, you have this lovely experience of finding each other again and bringing forth the work to share with all of us. Thanks for being so generous on the show today. Thank you, Carmen, for having me on. And I hope this is the beginning of many conversations together <laughs> and, and around some in person. Wow. You know, I'm struggling to describe this phenomenon of getting to know more intimately the sort of special creative life force that is the Finn Strand clan. <laughs> like from interviewing Sophie a couple months ago and now Perdita. Um, and, and though... I first read The Way of the Rose a number of years ago. I actually listened to it on Audible sometimes to help me fall asleep. It's like my comfort read as I'm going to, if I can't get to bed. And it's read by all three of them. So Clark Strand and Perdita Finn, the co-authors, each read their respective chapters. And then their daughter, Sophie Strand, reads the sections that are channeled from the lady, from Mary. And getting to know Perdita better, it, it was like, a little uncanny how many interests and similar experiences we seem to share. Um, I don't know. In another life, we must have been cousins or, you know, in the same devotional group or something. Um, anyway, I guess I'm going to have to get Clark on the show because there's kind of like a symmetry there that feels a bit incomplete for me now. But as I said at the top, this episode truly felt 
like a masterpiece, like one I could listen to again and again. There was like a lot of resonance to make it really comfortable and soothing to listen to. And then just enough like dynamic tension and contrast between us to make it interesting. I love it. I love it. I hope you enjoy it too. I definitely recommend wholeheartedly that you get Perdita Finn's new book, Take Back the Magic. I will link to it and her website and Instagram in the show notes, which you will find in your podcast player or at numinouspodcast.com. And my listener shout out today goes to Lost in Yachna from the United States, who gave a sweet five-star review to the Numinous Podcast in the Apple Podcast app. They wrote, holy smokes, <laughs> such grace and beauty in an interview, a robust presentation of the pursuit of knowledge, wholeness, and love through reverent practice, study, and revelation. Love, love, love. Wow, great words, Lost in Yachna. Thank you for such a sweet review. That was very nice. And finally, join us on Saturday, October 28th, 2023 for our annual Witches New Year event online. We're looking at the astrology for the year of uh, 2024, plus the tarot card of the year, ancestral veneration, and more. Tickets are just $50 Canadian for all seven sessions with a sliding scale as always. Get your ticket now at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-B-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care. Thank you.